you can be afraid and still be amazing. As an athlete, you have one job. Your job is simply to improve. Confidence cannot be bestowed upon you by third parties. Confidence by textbook definition is a feeling. It's a way that you feel in a moment. It's not a lifestyle attitude. Welcome to the Gymnastics Growth Show. My name is Nick Ruddock, a performance gymnastics coach providing world-class education, events, and consultancy services to the international gymnastics and professional sports community. This podcast is dedicated to optimizing athlete and coach performance from grassroots to gold standard. Stay tuned to discover tactics and strategies designed to transform results for you and your athletes. Welcome to episode 34 of the Gymnastics Growth Show podcast with peak performance coach Mike Gillette. Mike Gillette is a best-selling author and peak performance coach who works with D1 athletes, aspiring Olympians and college-bound club athletes. His past clients include Microsoft, the Walt Disney Company and Cirque du Soleil. His exploration of mind and body development have led to feats which have been documented by Guinness World Records and Ripley's Believe It or Not. Through his books and online courses, Mike's methods are used in over 50 countries worldwide. In this episode, Mike talks in detail about the confidence conundrum alongside content around competence, fear and willingness, raising some really interesting points for coaches to reflect on. Mike also shares his two most effective questions that he asks athletes in times of anxiety and fear. If you're listening on your phone, it would be great if you could take a screenshot, stick it up on social media and use the hashtag gymnasticsgrowth. I'd love to know what you think of the episode too, so please send me a direct message or comment on the post on Instagram or Facebook. Here's episode 34 with Mike Gillette. Thank you very much for joining for today's call, where I know that you've got, like I said, a lot of value to add to um, to the audience that are watching here. And um, we could probably start with a bit of an introduction as to who Mike Gillette actually is, um, because you've got a, a pretty long resume. You've got a, a lot of credentials and things that you've experienced. And um, a lot of that experience you're able to not only share with us, but it could be very beneficial for the coaches that are watching and, and of course, their athletes as well. Would you be able to give us kind of like a, a whistle stop tour of who Mike Gillette is and, and why we should be listening to you today? Okay. Um, my, uh, my training journey began many years ago uh, in the, uh, I, w- I was in the military, uh, then college, then uh, law enforcement. And when I was in law enforcement, I had the opportunity to uh, become involved in, in a uh, instructor trainer course which I think had less to do with my own brilliance and more to do with the fact that this particular course was something that no one in my agency wanted to attend. So they sent, you know, the the lowest ranking fellow, which was me, but it was uh, a police officer fitness instructor course. And upon completing this course, I started to get plugged in at different police academies and so forth. And I was functioning as a uh, internal resource with respect to issues of, you know, fitness, nutrition, uh, there's a lot of injuries, uh, there are a lot of uh, lifestyle issues that impact fitness in that realm. And I found that uh, I was fascinated by, by just the process of training, you know, and and the the communication aspect of it, you know, taking information and uh, making it assimilable uh, to others. 
And such was my interest in training that uh, I started to pursue more opportunities for that. And when I, uh, I didn't have the opportunity for my agency to send me to training, I started taking my own personal time. I started traveling across the U.S. and attending courses. And I think I realized at some point that as much as I enjoyed working you know, in the police services, that uh, training was ultimately going to be my destiny. So I, I pursued that vigorously, and in uh, 2001, I left law enforcement after 12 years and was involved in training full-time. Hmm. And uh, world events sort of uh, unfolded a particular way, uh, 9-11 specifically, and that led me into um, some areas that I had not previously expected to go to. I ended up doing more work with the airline industry than, than anyone else. Uh, and some of that work was, was really more mental in nature as opposed to just, you know, physical problem-solving skills, to put it euphemistically. So uh, I had the opportunity to work with some major companies on the topic of what we might refer to as uh, behavior detection. Uh, sort of figuring out what people might do uh, of an untoward nature uh, simply by learning how to read those visual cues. Uh, and some of that had its origin in uh, law enforcement, but uh, some of that uh, was uh, born out of my ongoing study of, you know, how, how the mind works, how, how we behave uh, when we have particular uh, motivations. And a lot of that was getting filed away for later use when I started working with athletes. But, uh, you know, I spent time uh, basically being uh, a prominent figure in the Homeland Security training realm back when that was a focus. And then that led to several years as a college professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which then led to five years as a bodyguard because, well, I'm still not completely sure. It was just training relationships that existed. And I sort of found myself in, uh, in that realm. And some of that work was not just, you know, moving VIPs from point A to point B, but also assessing the likelihood of, of future problems. And, you know, some of that's sort of mechanical, but a lot of that is also delving into the psychological again. And much of this work, although I didn't realize it at the time, was ultimately going to serve as much of the basis for what I bring to bear when I'm working with people in the realm of, of self-improvement. And in uh, 2012, I left uh, bodyguard work uh, completely. That's when you know, I, I started to release some products on my own that were outside the the scarier realms that I had previously inhabited professionally. And uh, it just seemed like I, if I didn't make that break, I never would because it was, it was a comfortable living financially speaking. And I, I was fairly well established there, but I had other things that I was really interested in, uh, in accomplishing in terms of how to make people better physically, how to make people better mentally and, and really sort of find uh, the, the right means of, of communicating both of those sort of holistically, if that makes sense. And uh, one of my first stops as I left that phase of my life was uh, working with a gymnastics club, which I didn't know much about the sport other than, you know, it came on TV every four years and like a good American, I watched it. But uh, I had the opportunity to become engaged with a, a, a very solid program. And I, I had been working with athletes previously, but mostly in, in the context of combat sports. 
Mm-hmm. So you know, we're talking about boxing, kickboxing, MMA, that that sort of thing. Uh, and those are interesting problems to solve. But I have never met a sport that fascinates me quite like gymnastics. Uh, I've worked with athletes in a variety of other sports since then, but gymnastics stands alone as you know the most cognitively complex, the most physically dangerous. The it, it creates the most opportunities for athletes to experience all of the mental blocks that are you know, common across the athletic spectrum, but they all sort of coalesce uh, and reach this critical mass in gymnastics. And as a practitioner uh, who's sort of non-denominational, who has the opportunity to work with any number of athletes and any number of sports, I keep finding myself drawn to gymnastics. Everything is there in terms of uh, problems to solve. And it, you know, the, the coaches are more fascinating. The athletes are more fascinating. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to uh, be able to speak with you on this topic today. So there, there's your thumbnail sketch. There we, there we go. And you, I mean, as if that wasn't impressive enough already, you missed, you missed some things out there, you know, in terms of uh, you're a multiple world record holder, am I right in saying? Of related to That's true. strong uh, activities. <laughs> those are... Um, in essence, uh, I think it's very important to, you know, if, if we, you know, if I was a gymnastics coach, if I had that expertise, then I could just, you know, lean on that. But uh, I'm this sort of anomalous entity, and I speak a lot about getting the most out of oneself mentally. So what I do is I test that internally as much as I'm able. And some of those tests uh, have sent me to the hospital. Some of them have put me in the Guinness Book of World Records. So it's, I don't do those things uh, with the expectation that anyone else do them. No one should do them. I shouldn't do them, yep. but I do them. And uh, it's, it's basically uh, you know, proof of concept testing, uh, if you will. Yeah. And, okay. and it's just an interesting thing to me. <laughs> yes, it is. It is interesting. Um, some of them are slightly bizarre and wacky, aren't they? Really, it's uh, it's cool. Really, cool. I think that's the technical term. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but great feats of strength. So, um, okay, what we want to glean, of course, is the is some of the lessons and the experiences that you've got that we can apply and that you are already proactively applying to people within the gymnastics community. So, um, it's you know we can recognise quite easily the amount of experience that you've got in in certain areas. What can we tap into that as gymnastics coaches? Where is, you know, wh- where are these concepts useful um, with its application to gymnastics? What, you know, because you came in as an outsider of gymnastics. So maybe there were gaps. Maybe there was, was immediate holes that you saw as opportunities to improve. Am I right in saying? Yeah, very, very, uh, very astute, actually. I think that um, one of the first things that I noticed because before I started engaging uh, with the gym that I mentioned, I spent two weeks not saying a word, just, you know, fly on the wall, watching, taking notes, just, you know, trying to assimilate this new language. And uh, as I was watching that, of course, you know, it continues to this day, but what I was really uh, caught by initially was the, the essentialness of communicating clearly. And there are, I think, some some challenges within uh, gymnastics for communicating clearly. And number one is, it is so inordinately technical. 
it's it's language is is rather baroque and in, in, in ornate in its own way. And because statistically the the kids who participate in gymnastics are they're just more intelligent. I mean, you know, test scores, grades all, all bear this out. And I think that you know we can make assumptions about our end user. So if I'm talking to some gymnasts, I might think that they're understanding me. And because they're gymnasts, they're so good at being compliant and polite, they'll act like they hear me. But if they don't quite understand, they may not, you know, request clarification. And I generally look at people's faces in terms of trying to sense, you know, is what I'm saying even making sense? And I would watch the faces of these kids. And sometimes the, the coaches were doing just a masterful job. But if a kid was having difficulty with a particular skill uh, or, you know, a step within a skill, typically what I would see are, you know, coaches talking louder. Oh, if you're not understanding it, I'll, I'll increase my volume or I'll talk faster or I'll just seem more impatient. And of course, you know, outside the gym, when, when we're all cool headed, you know, we know that that's not helpful, but we're sort of all susceptible to those, uh, you know, basics of, of uh, frustration, how that manifests. Mm -hmm. So trying to find the right way of communicating and, you know, and some of this will sort of, you know, move into the area of preferred learning styles and so forth. Um, if I'm talking to you and I'm paying attention, I may notice that you seem to relate more to terminology that has to do with your, the visual sense. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me draw a picture for you. Uh, other athletes, you know, uh, put it in terms of, of you know, sound or you know, the, the kinesthetic thing. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to maybe move them or you know, gesture at them, that sort of thing, and, and create some, some sort of uh, example that way. And, you know, these are, of course, things that, you know, we all know as coaches, we, we've all, you know, attended those workshops at, at conferences and so forth. But because language is so common to us, and, and if we're coaches, we generally assume we're pretty good at this. We know how to talk to people. Anyone who can teach a gymnast gymnastics is a gifted communicator. You can't not be a gifted communicator and get that result. So sometimes I think that we you know, become complacent and we just assume that, you know, people are understanding us. So that was really the first thing that I saw was mm. just the, uh, the essential nature of effective communication and the problems that can arise when uh, you know, things aren't quite syncing up, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And um, I think you're right. We, we're not we're not dealing with adults. Most of the case, we're dealing with children. Um, we do make a lot of assumptions. You know, we, we assume they've heard us. We assume they've understood us. And we assume that they're trying to do exactly what we've asked them to do. And of course, they are all um, assumptions, which might, might not be accurate. So how do we fix that, Mike? How do we improve on that? What... Uh I generally will advocate is if, if I'm sensing that there's some sort of block happening, you know, for, for, from coach to athletes, um, the first thing I would say is, okay, so her name is Jane. Uh, Jane, tell, tell me what you heard me just tell you. And so th there's our first level of diagnostics. And if it sounds like she basically had everything that I said, 
then we know it's a comprehension issue. But if she can't quite uh, fill in the gaps of everything that I just said, okay, then there was something that was missed. And if she didn't say it, you know what was missed so that you can potentially reinforce that. Uh, but if she says everything that you said and she's still not getting it, then, um, well, Jane, is there um, a better way to explain things to you? I mean, is there anything in the way that I'm talking that uh, isn't helping? You know, and I generally, you don't want to put the kid in the position of, well, I don't want to say anything to make the coach angry or frustrated or anything like that, because you know, some of these kids are excruciatingly polite. So, you know, you, you have to be sensitive to that. And we, we sort of open things from there. I said, so if it's a situation uh, where we're trying to break down a particular skill, I say, okay, how about you teach me the skill just with words? What do I need to do to do this skill? And then listen not only to what she says and if it sounds complete or not, but if there's a way that she's describing the skill, what kind of language is she using? Because that's going to tell you what kind of language she prefers or the kind of language that, that sinks in and that it hears. And sort of use, use those back and forth moments, obviously, you know, time permitting, uh, to try to get a better sense of how uh, your different athletes communicate. And one of the great challenges for coaches, of course, is how many kids are there in, a, in the gym? That's a lot of different communication styles and a lot of different temperaments and all of that. But hey, no one said this job was easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm hearing here is that we need to make sure um, that our, our message has been understood clearly. You're, you're testing that by asking them to kind of recite your instructions back to you. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps they will be able to do that um, using their preferred language, but that still doesn't mean that they are actually able to apply the techniques and things that you're asking right. of course and now right. i call this connecting the dots and uh and sometimes it's it could be that you um have an intervention which could be a different drill which helps them to feel what it is that you're asking them to feel because yeah. they might they might know the language but not have the feeling or be able mm -hmm. to associate with that um for example let's say that you were asking for an athlete to to do a late twist so if it was a, a straight back somersault with a late twist they might feel like they're twisting early um mm -hmm. so your language and actually what they're feeling are are not in harmony and that's when you need to try and find an, an intervention which can help them with that if you're listening to this podcast, then there's a great chance you're a gymnastics coach who is committed to bettering yourself and enhancing your skills and knowledge to improve your athlete's results. In recent years, Nick has provided advice, coaching and education services to over 20 international gymnastics federations, sharing his experience coaching at a world-class level and many of the proven concepts and philosophies that are getting great results all around the world with his clients and community. The Gymnastics Growth Academy, Nick's brand new membership and mentoring program, is now your opportunity to learn these same teachings, alongside a ton of additional information on technique, methodology, programming, physical preparation, and much, much more. To further explore the Gymnastics Growth Academy and join the fast-growing community of coaches learning from Nick's mentorship, visit gymnasticsgrowth.com. I know a lot about what you do is about the intrinsic belief that you're able to fulfill the task. Okay. And mm -hmm. we talked about the yes, yesterday was, um, was about, you know, the confidence kind of, uh, illusion, if you like, or the, the use of language around confidence in the gym. Do you want to just delve into that for me? Yeah, that's, uh, 
a, a tricky bit because uh, confidence is a perfect uh, term that we assume everyone understands. And I'm going to digress for a moment to make a, la uh, a language analogy. So a few years back, uh, I was starting to get uh, a local reputation as someone who really understood uh, nutrition as related to performance. And I had uh, done a couple of presentations at a couple of gyms specifically on, you know, the things the kids tend to eat versus the things that maybe would be more helpful. Nothing particularly technical because, you know, kids don't, don't thrive on that. Uh, and then I would sometimes do it for parents. Uh, the, the biggest name gym in the area that I was operating in must have caught wind and they requested that I do uh, a nutrition presentation. Uh, now, this is a gym that had... Uh, the highest concentration of elite gymnasts and anywhere around where I was. And I was looking forward to the opportunity and I had an opportunity to speak with one of their uh, junior coaches, just to kind of, you know, clarify the presentation. And what I found through that conversation is they did not want me to talk about nutrition. What they wanted me to do was remind the elite girls not to eat so much. Basically, this is one of those gyms where they were very concerned about producing a particular body type. Uh, and their, their concerns were that, you know, girls were eating like normal girls. So I, uh, I politely declined uh, because I, I don't want to contribute to, you know, eating disorders and, and, and all of that. But it was nutrition. What nutrition meant to me, it meant something completely different uh, to the coaches at this particular gym. And so it goes with confidence. We have uh, what we think you know, confidence means, and then we talk about confidence to kids. And confidence is actually a fairly uh, ambitious topic to wrap one's head around when one is a kid. But what confidence is, is uh, this, this time-honored state of mind that uh, many of us have, as coaches have been uh, told is this an invaluable commodity and I'm not uh, you know denigrating confidence confidence is wonderful when it shows up but the the con the conventional way that confidence is communicated in my opinion is that you know I'm talking to Jane our, our hypothetical gymnast again I said you know Jane um, you know technically you're good you're strong you know, you work hard great attitude you just need to be more confident when you compete okay um, what does that mean? You know, did I tell Jane how she can get confidence? No. And generally the reason why is because how many people know? How do you know how to, you know, instill to build this sort of uh, ephemeral quality? It's complicated stuff. Um, now the next meet comes along and Jane technically good, all, you know, has all the attributes for success. But on this particular day, she noticed uh-oh, I don't feel confident. Well, this is going to be a subpar performance because my coach told me that what I really need to bring to bear is confidence and I don't have whatever that is. So the, the challenge is how can you work with a kid who has sort of absorbed this, uh, this doctrine uh, and, and kind of help them find ways to sort of work past it? Because again, if the kid's confident, fantastic. We love seeing our kids compete uh, as confident athletes. They enjoy the process more. They tend to uh, receive more from those efforts. You know, everything is great. But uh, 
if you chase confidence thinking that that's the requirement, I believe that you're chasing the wrong thing. Confidence by textbook definition is a feeling. It's a way that you feel in a moment. It's not a lifestyle attitude. Now, uh, what I believe is much more important is, uh, is willingness. So here's an analogy. When we're born and we're babies, uh, one of the things that's just hardwired into us is the desire to learn to walk. And assuming that there's no, I mean, we're talking about uh, gymnasts, there's no limitations there, physically speaking. So we, we teach ourselves to walk. Your parents don't teach you. Your gymnastic coach of the future does not teach you. You teach yourself, and you teach yourself through trial and error. And in this trial and error phase, you fall down. You hurt yourself. You basically experience numerous examples of what we refer to as negative reinforcement. Uh, if babies were more logical, they might stop trying to learn how to walk because it's such a problematic process, and the, the immediate feedback is so negative. Mm -hmm. But what happens, we... We want to walk, so we, we learn to walk. We are not confident about that. We don't require confidence to achieve success. We achieve success simply because we want to do the thing. And I like to encourage gymnasts to engage with their sport simply from that very elemental sort of visceral level. I love this. I want to do this. And when we have those moments where, you know, confidence seems to be the uh, presenting symptom or lack thereof. Uh, we're generally talking about moments where, you know, oh, I'm a little concerned about going backwards or the coronavirus has prevented me from training for a long time and I've lost my, my timing and just everything feels weird now. And I'm older now as I sort of re-experience being upside down and up high and all of, all of those things. So it's, uh, even though some of it's familiar, it's a little bit uh, unsettling in a way. So it creates these opportunities to be anxious or doubtful. And those are all going to be issues that all the coaches watching are going to have to solve. So how can we solve that very simply, you know, by, by trying to, you know, cram this mythical thing called confidence into them? I, I would say, no, there's a simpler way. Um, so hypothetical gymnast Jane, she's uh, on the beam. She's a little anxious right now, I'll say. So uh, does this feel a little scary? And she says, yeah. I said, Okay, that's fine. Um, can you remember a time when you were learning a new skill and that skill was a little scary? My guess is she's probably going to say yes. And I'll say, okay, so how did you get through that? And she'll probably say something along the lines of, well, I just did it. Okay. So how many times do you think in your life you might have overcome that feeling by just doing it? I don't know. Okay. Maybe 10, maybe 20. You know, we establish in some way that it was multiple times and that she's capable of doing this thing. I said, so um, you're a better gymnast right now than you were then, right? Yeah. Okay. So you know that you can do this, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be here to help you do this. And you know, there we are. Um, I think in terms of connecting uh, what we were talking about yesterday, uh, you know, confidence comes from competence and hopefully you know, the audio is clear enough. So I'm yep. saying that uh, effectively, but um, one of the times I really saw that physical link playing out you know, in a big way. And I, I know, you know, this example was at Alphonse gym, mm -hmm. all of those bar setups with all of those spotting blocks, you know, all of those scary skills 
trained in a way that any kid could see that, yeah, okay, I've, the coach has got me. I'm fine. I, I can literally just, you know, fling myself with reckless abandon and I'm going to be okay. So in, in that sense, by creating high levels of competence, you know that the, the kids who swing bars at Alphonse Gym are confident, but they're not confident just because they've got good attitudes or today's a good day, but because they, they built it. You know, I will say that confidence cannot be bestowed upon you by third parties. Confidence is the sum total of repetitions, you know, successfully accomplished. Anytime that we are chasing confidence, I believe we're chasing the wrong thing. I think that we simply need to reconnect with our, uh, our love of the sport. And I will say that as an athlete, you have one job. Your job is simply to improve. You know, trophies and, and medals and scholarships take care of themselves as long as you consistently improve. And if you consistently improve, all of those other uh, things that are just as important, you know, are you going to have fun? Are you going to feel good about yourself? Are you going to learn things about yourself? Of course you are, you know, because you are, you know, putting in the work necessary that leads to, you know, perpetual improvement. So am I hitting the, the right notes there, Nick? Yes, I think you are actually. I think you've, you've blended a couple of points there, which I think are key for coaches to pay attention to. The, the first one clearly is that um, chasing confidence is just a dead end. Um, confidence is a byproduct of competence. It is um, a trust that the athlete will develop in their own abilities um, based on, like you said, successful repetitions. And, and just if they're going to go to a competition and have confidence, they need to trust in their ability to deliver the routine under pressure. What you're basically saying is that they can still deliver a very good routine if they're not confident because actually they are competent to do so. So by changing their perspective on what confidence is, or at least changing their perspective on where they should be focusing on, what they should be focusing on, um, may, may help the athlete deliver their routine under pressure. So it doesn't matter if they don't feel confident as long as they trust their abilities and they trust what they've been able to deliver in the gym. And I think that's a, that's a key difference that we, as coaches, we're chasing all the time confidence with you're right a lot of coaches are saying be more confident do this with more confidence because actually it's irrelevant language that's not going to be helpful to the athlete yeah uh, very uh, very good summation there i think that um what one of the things that i bring to the table probably because of my background is uh encouraging people to relate to what fear is in a different way than a lot of the conventional sort of sports paradigms are because the, the world that I came from, uh, the idea that you can solve fear by simply feeling confident would be silly. You know, when, when life and death sort of, you know, lurks uh, over everything that one does, uh, you need to be afraid because that's simply uh, reflecting the fact that you're, you're, you're grasping the, the reality of your situation. So what I generally tell athletes is you can be afraid and still be amazing. Um, you know, when we had, uh, last year was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So there was a lot of attention on, on that particular, uh, feat of, uh, you know, human ingenuity and endeavor. And I would, last year I was using the analogy to kids. Um, do you think those, those astronauts might've been a little bit afraid? 
you know, as they sat on three different sized bombs that basically exploded them out into space. They had an idea of how it might work, but it had never been done before. Are they going to land on the moon? Are they going to get off the moon? Are they going to get off the moon and get anywhere close to the planet they left in the first place? With, with technology that was, you know, less advanced than that, um, they had to be terrified. You'd be crazy not to be. But they, like they loved gymnastics, those astronauts loved the idea of just the adventure of what all that represented. And, you know, afraid or not, there was no way they would not do that then. And I think that, you know, just when we're talking to kids, we can use some very simple examples. It's like, yeah, I guess that would be pretty scary when you think about it. Uh, and they still achieved uh, every sort of performance benchmark along the way. And uh, they, they performed admirably, just like kids do at gymnastics meet when, when they're doubtful, when they're nervous, and in all of those other things. So if we can relieve our athletes of the burden of trying to, to get this thing called confidence and wrap ourselves all up in it, then they can just be, today I'm a, I'm a little nervous. Okay. You know, just like today I have a cold or today I didn't get enough sleep because the meat, you know, is out of town and we're at a hotel and my friends and I stayed up too late watching TV. Well, that happens, but the meat is still the meat and it doesn't care how you feel. So don't you worry so much about how you feel and just know that because you've trained as, as you were saying, Nick, uh, you can do this. You know, if you, if you trust in what your coach is doing and uh, you know that your coach is not going to put you in a situation uh, where you're not going to be, you don't have the potential for success, then you can just, you know, throw yourself into those experiences and just enjoy them uh, for what they are. Yeah. So instead of um, ignoring fear or pushing it to the back of the mind and encouraging athletes to, to, to not recognize it and, you know, you're not mm -hmm. scared, you're not allowed to be scared in this environment, only tough people survive and, you know, all that kind of language. We're actually trying to do the opposite and, and actually, mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say uh, encourage it, but if it, if yeah. it does pop up, you're, mm -hmm. um, you're recognizing it, you're increasing your yeah. awareness and you're accepting that it's okay to feel fear. Fear is normal. Let's mm -hmm. let's deal with this fear now. Let's see how we can um, you know develop a strategy to allow you to continue to improve. Because, like you said, fear can keep you focused. It has a lot of positives to it as well, um, and it's, it's it isn't something that we should basically educate the athletes to feel like they failed because they feel fear. Yes, that, that their self worth is is dependent on the fact that they're confident or not, because that's again that's not what you're saying at all. Right. It's ultimately what we're trying to do is demystify fear, rob it of its power so that it's, uh, it's, it's no more consequential than, uh, you know, I've got a slight headache. It's, it's just, it's just something. And you become so practiced at working past it that, you know, if it's there, it's there. And if it's not great. What are some of the techniques then? or the changes in the use of language that coaches can consider um, whilst we're on this topic of either um, confidence slash competence um, or fear. Are there any sort of okay. techniques that can help them? Well, uh, some quick techniques that uh, are translatable to athletes, even younger athletes, are um, if you sense that something is, is amiss, uh, either in training uh, or warm-ups at a competition, um, just ask. Uh, so, Janie, uh, what's going on or, you know, how are things going? Uh, 
I usually say like, what's going on? Because how are things going? Fine. You, you know, gymnasts, they're, they're so compliant. Um, and you create an opening. So like if, if they can articulate in that moment, well, I'm, you know, I'm feeling a little nervous or, uh, I haven't been doing this routine that long and I just don't want to, you know, you know, pause, try to remember it, mess up those sort of things. So, um, that's when we can introduce uh, one technique, which is, and this is a fairly common one, but sometimes things are so common we forget about them or overlook them. And it's, it's the one technique. It's just uh, what's important now. So I'll say, okay, Janie, um, for you to do this bar routine well today, what, what do you need to, to be focused on? And then listen to them. And whatever they say is the right answer. Because anytime we ask an athlete, uh, a question like that, what we're ultimately asking is their opinion about themselves. Their opinion about themselves is always correct. So uh, one of the things that we tend to do as coaches, you know, we just want to share, you know, insight and wisdom all the time because we have so much of it. So Janie says what the three things that she need, well, uh, I need to do this, this, and this. And I'm thinking, she left out two very important things. But don't you also think that you need, okay, now she's got more stuff in her head. And you know, so sometimes we're, we're not always helpful, even though we're trying to be helpful. And that's sort of, you know, one, of one of the coaching conundrums uh, that, that plague all of us, you know, is, is really knowing, okay, at some point, everything else I say is just going to bounce off her head because her head is already full of stuff. And you, you need to sort of be sensitive to that. So I generally will use that, that uh, question, what's important now? So Janie, what do you need to focus on to, to really manage this? And if she says something that, you know, you think might be uh, too much, it's like, um, okay, that last thing you said, is that something that is going to help you during your, your routine? Well, yeah, maybe not. Okay. So Janie, if we can just focus on a couple of things, because there's only so much room in our head at any given time, what things do you think are most important? Like maybe she has a list of five or six things. That's too much. Okay. So work with her to sort of whittle that list down. Okay. So another, now that's what's important now. And that's uh, different athletes experience that in different ways because of you know, basketball plays out a particular way, uh, gymnastics plays out a particular way, golf plays. So, you know, what's important now always is very context dependent, obviously. And another uh, technique that I like to use are what I call the two most important questions. And I just, I just asked uh, Janie, uh, how, what's going on? And she says three things right off the bat. I'm just kind of scared. I'm nervous. It's like, okay. Um, you say you're nervous. I, th I think I know what that means. What, what's making you feel nervous? Do you, do you think you know? And she probably, well, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just scared. There's a lot of people here that, you know, what, whatever, uh, kids tend to you know, pull from about 10 common, uh, causes. And she may say something that is not actually true. And she may be much better than she is saying that she is in that moment. So, if she says something, I just don't think I'm, I'm, I'm good enough to, to compete with these other girls today, I'll say. So here's important question number one. Uh, Janie, is, 
is that thought true? And just don't prompt, just let her sort of struggle with that a minute. Well, I mean, you've competed against a lot of these girls before, right? Yeah. Okay. Does that sound like someone who's good enough to compete with these girls? Yeah. So when you have that thought that you're not good enough to compete, is, is, that an actu- is that actually a true thought, Janie? And she'll probably say, no. Now, there are times when they'll bring up a thought, and it is true. And then that's when the follow-up question comes in. So we ask, okay, is that thought helpful? And we're t- meaning helpful in, in that moment. You know, not helpful in the context of, well, you know, over the next couple of years, I'm going to really contemplate this thing. It's like, that, that's not it. Uh, kids don't think that way. So is this thought true? Yes or no? And if it's no, then you know, we've sort of solved for the next one. But if it is true, well, but is this thought helpful? Is, is this what we should be focusing on right now? And these questions really apply more readily to competition environments than training, but sometimes in training as well. You know, if, if you notice over the course of the week, the same mistakes, uh, maybe it's not just a, a physical cause, maybe there's, there's something lurking around in the mind that you know, seems to be getting in the way. And you can use that, those very simple frameworks to get into some pretty uh, revealing and instructive conversations. Mike, I really, I really like that because you're basically making the athlete more conscious of their feelings. Um, and I think this, this isn't even just relevant for athletes. This is, this is very applicable right now for a lot of the coaches that will be watching or listening to this because um, we've probably got a lot of funny thoughts going in our heads with, with the current sort of circumstances. And yeah. a lot of it, as we know, fear is often worry about an event which may or may not even happen. Um, a, lot of, a lot of fear is make-belief, of course, and we, we're born only fearing, uh, I think it's loud noises and uh, falling. I think they're the only two things that we're actually, um, yes. you know, born. And everything else is learnt behaviour. Um, by recognising or by getting the athlete to recognise how thoughtful sorry, how helpful their thoughts are, we can start to really tap into their conscious mind. Um, because if we, we know that if we can change the way they think, we'll be able to change the way they feel and therefore behave about something. So I think this, those questions are, are very good questions. I'm, you know, I'm not surprised that you use those two quite effectively because, um, yeah, they're very powerful indeed. So is that true? And is that thought helpful? Now, of course, if that thought's not helpful, I'm assuming that you're going to go on a step and replace that thought with one which is more productive, which is going to help them to fulfill whatever task it is that you're trying to get them, get them to achieve. Right. And that's usually a fairly easy process because if it's, if it's not helpful, then what is helpful? Yeah. The opposite of whatever that thing was. I mean, mm. yeah, it's so it, it, it's fairly intuitive to sort of uh, direct the athlete uh, towards that. Yeah. Nice. This is, I mean, again, this is really powerful stuff for, for a young person doesn't matter whether they're a gymnast or not but if a young young individual can learn these tools it's going to help them um for their entire life this is not just about whether they want to do a backhand spring or or a flip on beam um there's going to be a number of occasions where unuseful thoughts enter into their mind or they start to tell them some themselves something which isn't true you're basically saying and this is you know there's obviously a lot of science and data behind this but we often play a narrative a story over and over again in our mind and we create these narratives about who we are and what we're able to do and what we're not and what we can't do and and most of those things are patterns but they're not necessarily true like feelings aren't facts 
you know, we've been programmed to think a certain way that might be through um, certain experiences. It might be that um, another individual tells us something and therefore we just believe it straight away. But we want to question those feelings, don't we? We want to question the narrative that is going over in our head, question the story that we, that we tell ourselves and break out from it if, if a lot of that stuff isn't true. That's, that's absolutely the case. And sort of it, in deeper levels, that, that's a lot of what I do. In fact, the, you know, the story analogy is, is very apt. I have a process that I use called mind writing when basically we start to mechanically go through the physical act of rewriting the story simply because uh, stories are how we learn. I mean, the, the, the mind is, is really programmed to grasp uh, concepts through, through metaphor through narrative. And, you know, as you say, we can be uh, telling ourselves stories that are not only not helpful, but getting back to the other question, is this story true? You know, and, and if it's not, then let's not perpetuate it. You know, let's, uh, and even if it is true, uh, we can rewrite that story as well. You know, simply by being conscious of there being a process for it, and then committing to that process and you know, being willing to sort of uh, invest the time necessary because it's, it's doable, but it's not fast. It's, it's not immediate and it takes uh, commitment because, you know, the brain is this amazing pattern seeking mechanism. It seeks to, you know, create a sense of order out of chaos, you know, which is the world. And the, even if you have faulty or damaging assumptions about yourself, your mind doesn't want to let those go because your mind has basically constructed your present reality around that. So uh, it, it does take work, but it's, uh, it, it's well worth the effort. Thanks for listening to the Gymnastics Growth Show with Nick Ruddock. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if so, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help support the positive messages found within these episodes. Assuming you're not driving or out for a run right now, why don't you head on over to gymnasticsgrowth.com to check out the valuable membership and mentoring opportunity delivered by Nick himself, which is impacting coaches and athletes all over the world. Thanks for sharing some of your day with us, and we look forward to you coming back for future coaching conversations on the Gymnastics Growth Show.